Oh, in uh, the 1970s, a pair of psychologists set out to conduct a study on uh, generosity and kindness, and they created what became known as uh, the Good Samaritan Study, and it was somewhat famous in its own right uh, and uh, has been referenced for many, many, many years since that. The gist of it was pretty straightforward. They took a large group, dozens of seminary students from Princeton Theological Seminary, and they broke them up in, in a, into two groups, uh, among other things. And when they broke them up, they gave one group the assignment to head cross campus and teach a topic on something random, like the value of a seminary education in whatever culture, whatever. Then the other group was told that their assignment was to go across, go across campus, same place, same location, and teach on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so the study, of course, was to see what impact would priming a group of people, seminary students in this case, what, what would happen if you had primed a group of people differently? How would they respond to someone in need? And how did they do that? Well, the experimenters planted a guy who was on the path that they had to take from where they got the assignment to where they were teaching. They planted a guy who was slumped over in a doorway and was coughing and kind of like clearly in some sort of distress. So who would stop and help. And so, of course, this is a fascinating psychological experiment. Uh, and uh, the group of seminarians who were told to go, across to, go, uh, to go across campus and to say nothing about the Good Samaritan, but instead to talk just about the value of their seminary education, any guess on what percentage of those people stopped to help the man who was clearly in distress? 40%. So, of course, you have to stop and ask yourself, well, what did the other 60% do? Well, the way they had positioned the man, some actually needed to step over the guy to get to where they were going. And so you're thinking, well, I feel like everyone should have stopped to help the guy. But, you know, at least we had the other group. And so the group that was actually teaching on the Good Samaritan, would they stop and be the Good Samaritan? What percentage of them do you think stopped? 40%. It had no statistically significant impact on whether or not somebody would stop, which questions whether I should even be teaching on it here today. But, but you have to imagine this for a moment. Seminarians of all people, some of whom were teaching on the Good Samaritan, stepped over a guy in need in order to get to do the thing that they were supposed to do, teaching on the Good Samaritan. It's hard to imagine. It, it just seems incomprehensible. How in the world could you have come up with so many hard-hearted, cold-hearted, cruel even people who, who all happen to be in one place at the same time and all in the same school and all in the... How is this even a possibility statistically? Until you start to ask yourself, how often we skip opportunities to do costly generosity. When you start to bring it home a little bit more and you start to say, wait a second, maybe there are way more opportunities to help people than I have also taken advantage of. 
And that's actually one of the powerful parts of this study. And of course, it's one of the powerful parts of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we're in this series called Doing Christmas. And it's more than simply an encouragement to generosity. It is also a meditation for us on the incarnation. How the incarnation of Jesus will draw generosity from us. The incarnation being the moment that God took on flesh in Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. That he was incarnated in flesh. And last week, we were introduced to one of the key verses in the whole of the Bible on this idea from 2 Corinthians. It says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, meaning he was in heaven, in the heavenly realms, he had everything. All was, was pointed toward him. All power, all majesty. Think of it in terms of all of everything. Wealth and, and glory and beauty and all of this. All of it was him. He was rich and yet, for us, he became poor. And so he became a child in a manger. He became hurtable. Poor. Giving up those things so that you, through his poverty might become rich. And so because of his giving up of his riches, his power, his strength, becoming poor, that ought to now make us rich in this life. Rich in the values and the virtues of generosity and the power of the Spirit. He wants the love that he showed to us here to flow out of us, to bubble over into the world around us out of the incredible abundance that we now have because of his riches given to us. So we, this is partly why last week we gave out uh, thousands of dollars here in the first of our exercises for doing Christmas. We gave out uh, these envelopes, uh, which I'm, I know that many, many, many of you were here last week and you got. Uh, I actually still have my envelope with um, my money in it. Um, but uh, we, last week we gave out uh, thousands of dollars from $5 to $500 randomly given out to you guys with the assignment to go out there and practice generosity. And so those stories have, uh, they've started to roll in as a way for us to do Christmas. And we're hoping that more, and you, more of you will roll your stories into us as well. But we had someone who started off right out of the gate. They went out and they were like, you know what, this person, they're, they're, they're workers, they're, they're uh, you know, in a restaurant. And they were like, you know, it looks like they could use a generous tip. And so they, they added that on top of their tip. We had another story that, come in, that came in. A guy said, I wanted to help people who were hungry. And so I took the, the, what I got in the envelope and I added my own money to it. And so he quadrupled his impact from what we had given out through him and what he added to it so that even more people here on the island could eat. There was another who had a friend that was facing a medical diagnosis that meant that she is living on borrowed time, and they all know that. And so she was able to use this money as a way of encouraging her in the midst of that uncertainty and to let her know that God is still looking out for her. We had another family that they know of some under-resourced kids who have experienced heartbreaking losses 
over the last few years. And so they pooled their money and they gave it to a fund that is helping provide Christmas for this family. And so these stories are starting to roll in. And if you have already completed your assignment, then, then you're celebrating Christmas already by doing Christmas. By taking of the abundance that we have and spreading it out into the world in a representation of the abundance and the generosity that Christ has shown to us. I also learned something uh, this week. I learned that it is actually really difficult for me to find a way to do something meaningful because I still have my envelope. And so this is very, very frustrating um, to me. I actually, I got 20 in uh, my envelope. Again, these are all randomly assigned, and so I still have my 20. I've been carrying it all week, um, and so I don't actually know what I'm going to do. I was thinking that if anyone is interested, if you need some, like, pastoral counseling, we could meet it like the black sheep, and I could just, I could treat, and I could use the 20, and we could do that as part. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to use the, the I'm, it's a joke. It was, I'm not going to actually, I'm not actually going to go to the, I mean, I am going to go to the black sheep, but I'm not going to pay for, anyway, it's just, it's a joke. Don't, can you scratch that from the video? Or is that already out there? All right, anyway. Today we're going to go just a little bit deeper into what it means for us to do Christmas. And you see that there's this love of God and others that captures the whole Christian ethic. And, and this, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is for us the key way that we get to see and understand this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. There's two sequences here, this one and the next one, where the lawyer asks a question, Jesus responds by asking him a question, then the lawyer answers Jesus' question, and then Jesus largely tells him, yeah, now go and do that. And so he never actually answers it directly, which I just love, I think is just a brilliant response that Jesus has to this trap that the lawyer was trying to set for him. And I think, of course, that this ethic right here, lifted right out of the Old Testament scriptures, two different parts joined together, was the teaching of Jesus. The lawyer might even have answered this because he's heard Jesus teach on it before. And this is such a beautiful ethic that if we were to live this way every single day of our lives, it would transform our lives. It would transform the lives of everybody all around us. It would transform the world if we would simply follow this. We also, with even just a few moments of reflecting on it, know that it is impossibly intimidating as well. This is an encouragement to an ethic, but it's also a mirror that we have to look at and see how we stack up. The lawyer knows this immediately. He understands how complex and how challenging this ethic will actually be. And so he turns around, he starts to qualify it, which of course is what I think so many of us do. And lawyers are amazing at this. What could be done in a thousand words, take a thousand pages with lawyers because they're qualifying every, every little thing. And so he does. He was like, yeah, but look, he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor. I think we're experts at justifying ourselves. It was Thanksgiving. Cheryl had gotten the whole house ready. We had a big group of people coming. It was going to be a great big Thanksgiving feast at the Kelly household. And she was cooking and she was cleaning and she was setting up and she was, she cooked two turkeys. 
like baked one and fried one, like deep fry. Like it was, a, it was amazing. I woke up on Thanksgiving. I hadn't really helped too much. I, I was very, very busy uh, in other very, very important things. And I woke up on Thanksgiving. I didn't have anything that I was assigned to do from her. And so I woke up and uh, I had cleaned the laundry room. Because, you know, that's the main room people see when they come over your house. And so she had mentioned that the laundry room was a wreck. And she was right, it was. And so I gave like a couple hours to cleaning the laundry room, which was pretty heroic uh, in, in many ways. Of course, everything in the laundry room, it was my dumping ground for all of my hunting gear. And so it was actually all my mess. You had to like kick stuff out of the way just to get through the, the, the laundry room. But I cleaned it up. And, you know, she, she actually, in the middle of all of her prep and cleaning and cooking and setting up and getting ready for the guests, she actually didn't mention it. She didn't say like, hey, what a great job you did. So like a day or two later, I was like, hey, so... Uh, did you notice the laundry room was clean? <laughs> she graciously was like, oh, yes, yes, I did. That was so nice. You did such a good job. I'm like, yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for all that we did. I also stood by with the fire extinguisher when she put the turkey in the oil. And so that, that was it. So here I am trying to justify my existence, trying to qualify myself, trying to make myself look a little bit better and I think we're so good at this. And, and the lawyer understands that's exactly what he's about to try to do. He's saying, who is my neighbor? If you can help me figure that out, then I'll be able to judge myself accurately based on your criteria. He's probably thinking of two different passages as, as kind of the two choices that he might be given. One is found in the actual verse. It's in Leviticus 19. But where it comes from, it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And so obviously the, the legal expert would know this. He's a legal expert in the law. And so he's thinking, yes, I can do that. I can actually love your na my neighbor as myself as long as we justify it, qualify it with this. Anyone among your people. So yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're talking about really good Jews like me, and like the priests, and like the scribes, then absolutely, I totally love my neighbor because they're, they're like my people. And as long as they're my people, then yeah, those are my neighbors. Of course I'm doing that. I mean, everyone does that, right? I mean, these are my peeps, of course. But he could be thinking about another verse, which is just a little bit further down in Leviticus. Leviticus, in third chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 33, he says... When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Oh, so the lawyer here is thinking, all right, which one is Jesus going to camp on? Is he going to say all of the really good Jews, those are the, my neighbors? Or is he going to go even further and say, no, 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 your neighbor is actually all of the people who are living in your midst, the good people, the good foreigners, who you are playing hosts to as the host nation. It would have never occurred to the lawyer that it could go any further than this. He wouldn't have a concept of what it might mean to love an enemy or to be in an occupied state. This was written when Israel wasn't an occupied nation, when Rome didn't have its soldiers and they weren't being abused, they weren't being taken advantage of. This was written at a time before even the Samaritans had, had blighted the land with their existence. 
So the lawyer's most likely thinking, which one is Jesus going to camp out on? And of course, Jesus picks neither. And he goes further than both. He blows their expectation out of the, the water and he does it with this brilliant story. But he wanted to justify himself and so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and when he was attacked, when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he, he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This most obvious application is that the story of the Good Samaritan is, is a, it's a celebration and it's a recognition of the costly generosity that is found in the heart and in the actions of an unlikely hero, the Good Samaritan. Even that doesn't make any sense to a Jew from 2,000 years ago. There are no Good Samaritans. This whole idea wouldn't even, it, 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 this was an unexpected hero. This, this was most likely a Jewish man who had been beaten on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The priests and the Levites, they were the ones who, who should have shown up in this storyline. But at the very least, it'll be a layperson. It'll be, it'll be just a regular good Jewish guy who will be the hero of this story. And so this unexpected hero, a person who is considered to be vile and untouchable. Even the structure of this parable actually points to, to this. It's kind of a cool thing. I'm going to nerd out on you for just a minute. I'm going to go really, really quick here. But there are seven parts to this story. Seven is often the way that a lot of these stories are laid out because seven, of course, is the number of perfection. This is a complete story. The seven parts line up in what we call a chiasm. And so these two parts line up, part one and part seven, part two and part six, part three and part five, all pointing to the middle of the story, which in this case, of course, happens to be the Samaritan. And so if you really wanted to nerd out on this for just a moment, you can go from verses 29 and 30 and you meet the robbers who steal and injure. Then you meet the priest who sees the need and does nothing. Then you meet the Levite who sees and does nothing. Then right in the middle of this story, right at the crux of it, is the good Samaritan, the unlikely hero. And for the rest of this parable, he's undoing what was done and left undone to the victim. So in verse 34, he treats the wounds. And we could look at that as the failure of the Levite. The Levite was most likely also traveling on foot. The very least he could have done is actually just treat the guy's wounds and help him from, you know, not bleeding out. That would have been the absolute minimum that he could do. But he probably would have struggled to get him down to Jericho because it was an exceptionally arduous road. It was a, it was a tough road, dropping like a thousand feet in elevation in this short little distance between these two cities. 
But the priest was from the more wealthy class. He would have almost certainly been riding a donkey, some sort of beast of burden, which means he could have gone off and thrown this guy on his donkey and gotten him down to the city of Jericho. And so in verse 34, he treats the Samaritan treats his wounds, which was the failure of the Levite. And then here in 34, he transports the man, which was the failure of the priest. And then he goes to the inn in verse 35, and he spends his own money, which of course is replacing what the robbers stole. And so you see he's, he, the, the situation of the man built all the way to the climax, and this unlikely hero crashes into the scene, and he undoes all of that harm that was done to the man. And this was offensive in his day. The Samaritans were a hated people. And you got to notice that the Samaritan actually promises at the end of it to pay whatever the cost. That's an important note because, you know, this was a guy heading into a Jewish city with a hurt Jew on the back of his donkey. He shows up into this city and he promises the innkeeper whatever it costs. You could easily see this as a, as a recipe for economic disaster. Well, you don't know how expensive he was been. His medical bills, they skyrocketed. He was so demanding. He bled out shortly before you came. We had to, like, do all these other treatments, and we had to call in experts, and it was lots, two denarii, not even close. That covered the first two days. He's been here, he's been here a month. You owe, me, you owe me a lot more than that. You owe me 50 denarii. And he promises that he was going to pay anything. And I think there are plenty of reasons that we have not to do Christmas, right? You can see it right out of the gate. There are safety concerns. I mean, what if the robbers are still there? Maybe they were worried about that. What if they're still kicking around in the neighborhood? Got to get out of here. Got to Look, there's actually criminals around here. We should get out of here quick. Maybe the priest and the Levite, they were thinking that. There are economic reasons why we shouldn't help people. I mean, the guy, the guy was stripped. That means he has no clothes. And he's unconscious. We know nothing about this guy, but we do know that if to bandage these wounds, the Samaritan is going to have to use his own clothing. He's going to have to rip garments. He's going to have to find fabric that he was traveling with. Certainly not unessential items. These were going to be things that were damaged that are going to have to be replaced. He uses his oil. He uses his wine. Also things that will have to be replaced by him at his cost. And then he, he offers the two denarii. That's, a, you know, that's at least a full two days wages. But that we were told that one denarii could put a guy in an inn for a month, which means he probably expected him to be there for a month with another denarii to cover all of his expenses. So he set him up. But he went even further and he was like, listen, I'm on the hook for more than that. I'm on the hook for whatever it takes. And so there was this economic risk that the Samaritan took. Just showing up in that town could have been trouble for him. Showing up in a Jewish town with a beaten up Jewish guy on the back of your donkey? A mob mentality could have broken out against this guy. There are plenty of reasons. But I also think there are some cultural, even religious ones. You know, for most of my life, I've looked at these people in the story and I've thought, they're pretty terrible, the priest and the Levite. Like, you know, shame on them. They must be horrible people. I hear the story from, you know, the Princeton Theological and I'm like, you know, these are terrible people. But is that likely? I'm not so sure anymore. See, I think there are lots of reasons that we have that we don't help people. And if we just think of them as terrible people, then we won't see ourselves in this story. And I think that's a risk. 
So in the Old Testament, we're told in Numbers 19 that anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died of a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or grave will be unclean for seven days. That's a reason enough for the priest not to touch the guy. This is risky. I'm going to be unclean. That means I'm not going to be able to go to the temple. That means I might have to go back. And what's that going to cost him? What is, how is he, he's not going to be able to participate. Is he going to be able to, uh, to take care of his family? What's going to happen to him? And we don't know anything about the guy. He's stripped. That means we don't know who he is. We don't know his class. Maybe he's the bad guy. Maybe he was beaten up by good people and left to die as he should be. Maybe he's one of our enemies that's oppressing our people. Maybe we save him. He turns around. He gets healthy. He goes and kills one of my family members. We know nothing about him. Remember, he was stripped and unconscious. I can't even hear his dialect to determine who he is. Maybe he's a Roman or worse. See, I think... I think it's likely that the priest would have wanted to do his duty. He just didn't know what his responsibility was. The Levite was most likely following the, following the example of the priest. Maybe he knew the priest had already made a judgment that this guy, he was further down on the road. He, he knew he wasn't going to, who knows? But he was listening to some other sort of authority. There was some other reason that they weren't helping. I mean, consider our time. I mean, that's a hard one, right? Using our time to help people. This is a challenge. The study itself, by the way, the Good Samaritan study actually addressed this. It was fascinating because they didn't just look to see who would be primed by one story of the Good Samaritan or not. They also gave the group three different instructions. They broke them up into thirds, and they said to, to one third, hey, you need to hurry up, get down there, because you're late. And then the next group, they said, hey, you know, you should head down there to, to, to the teaching assignment because, you know, if it, you, they're just, it'll be starting soon, but, you know, you have time, but you should be heading down there now. He created a little bit of hurry sense for them. And the third group, they said, don't worry about it. You got plenty of time. Just head down there, and you'll be there in plenty of time to do your teaching assignment. So they created an artificial sense of hurry for the seminarians. You think that had a statistically significant impact? It did. A shocking one, actually, because 63% of those who were not in a hurry stopped to help. More, of course, than the average. 45% of those who were in a medium hurry stopped to help. But those who had been told they were already late, only 10% stopped. The writers of the study, the researchers, they said, you know, this is a huge challenge for us. Those who had a sense of hurry said they can't do the things that they ought to do, that they want to do, that they know they have a responsibility to do because there's, there's just no resource available. No time, no money. And if you live in a sense of a lack of resource, if you're living by the standards and the rules of this world rather than through the poverty and riches of Christ given to you, then you will have that same sense of poverty of time and money. And you'll be less inclined to be able to live out the ethic that Jesus is calling us to. And here we see this idea of competing responsibilities. The writers of the study, they put it like this. Conflict rather than callousness can explain the seminarian's failure to stop and help. Conflict with other responsibilities. 
the competing values. They were told that they have to go there and do this thing and that people were depending on them. Isn't it likely that that's the reason that the priests and the Levites also didn't stop in the story? Not that they didn't want to do something good, not that they were so callous and hard-hearted, but that they said, I've just got so many responsibilities. I have so many other things I'm supposed to do. I have so many other ways that I'm supposed to, that, that people are depending on me, that I'm supposed to show generosity to a whole host of other people. And Jesus turns all of this upside down and he says, you're living by standards that I have not set for you. And so Jesus, he turns this whole thing around for them. And he, right, the question the lawyer asked was, who is my neighbor? And what ends up happening is Jesus turns the question on the lawyer. Right, he never answers the question, who is my neighbor? He actually asks the lawyer a different question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? So he's not saying, you know, let me answer your question about who's your neighbor. He's asking the question of the lawyer, who are you a neighbor to? Who, who, who is it that you ought to live with a costly generosity toward? How is it that you will live as the good Samaritan rather than those who have competing values and priorities rather than loving God and loving people with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you see, this is where the incarnation of Jesus matters so much to us because it is Jesus himself who is that unexpected hero, the famous Christmas verse. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And that's the incarnation. It's God with us leaving the throne room of heaven, the riches of heaven, the glory and the power and the praise and the whole presence that you can imagine with the best of your imaginations of what heaven is and coming here to earth, God with us. And then in John, we find out that this is how that application meant, comes to us. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So he comes to us, God with us, and lays down his life for us. And because of that sacrifice, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He actually goes even further to say, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? The logic here is about the incarnation. Look what God did for you. Look how he drew near. Look how he came and look how he took risks and look at the costly generosity and all of that. How is it that if you've experienced that love of God that you won't just naturally overflow, that you will have pity, you will have compassion, you will experience a heart that goes after costly generosity. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Let it be something that we will actually do. We get into the story here of the Good Samaritan, and it is only a few moments of reflection that we start to realize that we are, in fact, the guy beaten on the side of the road. We're the guy who has been stripped, who is bleeding out, Right? We want to first identify ourselves with the Good Samaritan, not the priest, not the Levi, but we're the guy beaten on the side of the road. And God, he steps out of glory and he comes down to this earth and he says, listen, I'm going to draw near. I'm not going to step aside to the other side of the road. I am going to draw near to you, God, with you. I'm going to take, I'm going to get off of my donkey. I'm going to put you on my donkey and I'm going to, I'm going to ride you down this, this perilous road. 
I am going to take the sacrifices. I am going to do the heavy lifting. I am going to do the hard work. And I am going to get you safely to a place that you will be cared for. In fact, I'm going to pay everything that you need. In fact, I'm going to pay. He, he puts himself on the hook. What kind of a person would put himself on the hook financially to have, to know, to not even to qualify, to not say, hey, listen, if I get back, I'll give you five more denarii for the guy. No, Jesus, he puts himself on the hook for the whole cost. He will pay the fullness, not a, not a few days wages, not a month, not a year. He lays down his life for you. He's the picture of the good Samaritan. He's the, he's the unexpected hero. And if we want to live in that way, then we tap into what he has promised to us, that he is giving to us this beauty, this value. He's pouring into us his great abundance and he's transforming our hearts and he's transforming our minds and he's saying, listen, we, you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You can love your neighbor as yourself because you have been forgiven by this powerful and beautiful God because I have paid your debt already. And now you get to live in the experience and in the beauty of the presence of God. God with you, not stepping aside, but bringing you fully and completely with promise to the land of hope and of healing. Who is my neighbor becomes, to whom must I become a neighbor? Jesus changes the whole of the thing and he says, from here on out, you'll be able to be this good Samaritan because you know what it is like to be saved by the good Samaritan and the unexpected hero in the story and you now get to live in that and be the unexpected hero as well, representing me in this world in increasingly beautiful and powerful ways, knowing that you have the favor of God, the forgiveness of Christ secured at the cross. We also have for you guys your next assignment. We told you that every week this, so if you haven't done the first one, you're behind like me, you have two this week. Um, and uh, so you got to catch up and share your story with us. But in order to introduce this one, I want to bring out Nicole to share just a moment with us about some of the things that have been going on here at uh, Beacon. Everyone say hello to Nicole and give her a warm welcome. Hi. So Nicole, you, uh, I, wanted to, you, I want you to tell us a little bit about how you have been involved with and got started with Beacon's Compassion Initiatives. Um, so since attending Beacon, um, I love that the ministry, it extends out into the community in so many ways. I've uh, helped with um, at the Mary Brennan Inn, uh, Nights of Shines, um, uh, our own food pantry here at Beacon. Uh, so there's, there's so many great opportunities here. Adopt a family. Now, about a year and a half ago when COVID hit uh, New York hard, you stepped up your commitment to Beacon's Compassion Initiative. So what did that look like? Yeah, so uh, like a, a lot of people, I, uh, God gifted me with the uh, gift of availability during COVID. And so I wanted to um, find a way to sh show care to people. And I thought that the least I could do was um, just buy some cards of encouragement and um, send them to uh, first responders or healthcare workers. So I reached out to Beacon and uh, they came back and said, you guys, 
They're like, great, can you um, also deliver some grocery cards to people in need with those uh, cards of encouragement? And so uh, I was just given a contact person um, and how to contact that person. I wasn't given any kind of information personally about them. And so I started reaching out to uh, these families and um, delivering these cards each month. And you formed some relationships along the way. Yes. So um, I wanted to honor uh, the recipient's um, privacy um, due to you know what what we were doing to help them and um so i didn't i didn't want to be invasive but i also knew that they were in a maybe a a difficult time and um season in their life so um when i call i would call them and it, it just so many conversations um on porches and um uh, on the phone it's, Everybody was experiencing something. Uh, everyone was affected um, by the shutdowns in, in different ways, but everyone was affected. And so this, this really uh, grew many relationships for me that are dear to me. Any of the stories that kind of stand out? Um, yeah, so there was, there was one woman, um, she, her husband had gone back to his home country uh, right before COVID hit, and then the border shut down and he was, he was stuck there. And then her adult, young adult son um, uh, just had a car accident right before also, and he needed a string of surgeries. Um, she was raising her teenage daughter. Um, and so we just found ourselves uh, talking uh, a lot, um, spending a lot of time um, also masked on her porch and uh, talking about motherhood, the changes in the world, and just the goodness of God, like, throughout uh, what we were all experiencing during that time. That's amazing. Now, we're, we're, we were involved with many of those families, many of their lives. You were personally involved with so many of them. Uh, and you've also participated in our Adopt-A-Family uh, initiatives, which we're also doing again. Yep. So um, we are doing an Adopt-A-Family this year. Um, Adopting a family doesn't mean that you adopt the whole family. We have a uh, tree outside in the lobby with tags. Many of the tags are already taken, but they're um, on uh, the Beacon website. There are some registrations still available. Um, there are still some tags that you can take. The gifts are due back um, next week. Each tag represents a gift that someone has requested to make their, their Christmas a little extra special during this difficult time. And um, so uh, we still have until uh, next, next Sunday to bring back gifts or uh, take a tag or register for something uh, online. Excellent. Now, we also know that uh, you have recently stepped in uh, to work uh, on our new with our compassion team as the new compassion team leader. For those of you who might have been around a while, you know that uh, for many years, Katie Miller, who is right there, Katie, has led uh, our compassion team. And so uh, let's give Katie a big uh, round of applause, big thank you. Katie is stepping up her own work and commitment with Soundview Pregnancy Centers and uh, is still involved here in a very heavy way with our compassion team. Uh, and it was now time for us to move some of the leadership responsibilities uh, over to Nicole. And so um, that is where you now find yourself. It is. And um, so the Generosity Project uh, for this 
uh, week is going to be, um, we're asking for grocery cards. So we have a food pantry here at Beacon, in case anyone uh, didn't know. And um, that food pantry, uh, we, um, we serve on a, a, an open, um, an uh, open, uh, I'm losing the word, uh, uh, open, open pantry, yeah, for... open for the community, I'm sorry, um, uh, one day a month, and uh, that, that uh, need is growing. This past month, uh, we served over uh, 20 families. Um, and our this pantry... gift card thing has been very active through all of COVID. Yes, and... Um, the, the gift cards are going to also supplement the things that, um, like, like fresh meats, fresh vegetables, um, things that, uh, while we do have some of that in our pantry, it is limited, and we want to be able to offer more, um, more of those fresh uh, foods and fresh items. So if you could bring in a gift card of any denomination to a, gro uh, to a grocery, uh, for grocery cards, um, $10, $50, $100, whatever your heart moves you, um, next week, I'll be collecting them in the lobby. Great. Right. I know that last year as well, there was a big numbers that we uh, gave out in both food and gift cards. Yeah, March to December, uh, we distributed $40,000 worth of grocery cards to people. And that's, that doesn't even include all of the food pantry and the and mobile food pantry no. and all of these other initiatives. Right, right. So yeah, you guys have your hands full. And so one of the ways that we get to participate and continue to support uh, the Compassion Team, the initiatives here at Beacon, and more importantly, the people in our community uh, who have been uh, struggling, is to go on out, pick up an Adopt-A-Family tag, go on the website, you could register for it, and of course, you can bring in uh, a uh, gift card. Now, before we say goodbye to Nicole, we should point out Eric loves attention, and so her husband, I just want him to stand and get... No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I'm not going to... I shouldn't do that to Eric. That was messed Tell up. Tell him to do that. Sorry, Eric. <laughs> Everyone give Eric a hug to make him feel better at the end. <laughs> Uh, Eric actually has been a big part of the distribution as well. Uh, I think I was not supposed to mention any of that. Um, but uh, anyway, let's thank Nicole and the Compassion team for just some incredible uh, work that they've been doing. And that is your assignment as well for this week of doing Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking that you would help each and every one of us to learn what it means to do Christmas in the way that Christ is calling us to. We're asking, Father, that you would stir up our hearts toward this end, the example of Jesus and the power of Jesus flowing through us so that we might represent you well in this world. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.